Whether you're at a game table, in your comfiest chair reading a book, or listening at home, there's nothing like a great adventure story. But they don't happen by accident. Welcome to the Joy of GMing, a special interview series on the craft of great gaming. There's just something magic about sitting down to a good table with great friends, isn't there? If you're a lifelong gamer or a newbie rolling up your first character sheet, if you're a DM or GM or just can't get enough tabletop talk in your day, this is the show for you. Each episode will bring you amazing guest speakers to talk about writing games and running them, building fantastic worlds and compelling story arcs, and oh-so-useful tricks of the trade. Here's some amazing stories, get inspired for your next game, and join us for an hour and a half or so of lively conversation. This sister series to Anywhere But Now, our Doctor Who actual play podcast, will be released between mods or episodes with our ongoing serialized show. We cover some making of and behind the scenes tidbits of our latest mod as well, so do stick around. I'm Casey Jones. Over the last dozen years, I've written and produced screenplays, children's animation for TV and film, graphic novels, stage plays, murder mysteries, and audio adventures. I've also been writing and running tabletop games for over 10 years. Join me as we dive deep into tabletop with experts in the field. Experts like our special guest today, Kylie Olson. Kylie would describe herself at her core as a storyteller. She's an entertainment professional who started her career as an actor and has since transitioned into the production side of the industry. She was introduced to the world of D&D and RPGs during her senior year of college when she starred in a production of She Kills Monsters at Loyola Marymount University. Kylie is also the producer and host of a horror movie and RPG podcast called Survive This Crit. Kylie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was just wonderful. The the theme music really, you were right, it really got me going. <laughs> I like that's what I love. That's what I love about music, both using it during a game but also during the interview. It gives it a nice little pep in our step as we get things rolling. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, you and Nick DePinto, your partner in crime, sure seem to be having a lot of fun over on Survive This Crit. What can you tell our listeners about it? Yeah, um, so Survive This Crit is a horror movie RPG podcast where every series we pick a new film and we decide in the end if we could survive this horror movie. So we take time to analyze the film and we take time to interview a guest in the entertainment industry or somebody in an equally adjacent field. Like for Halloween, we had a security expert on and it was really cool oh, hearing nice. her perspective of like what she would do to make sure Michael couldn't break in, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we craft an RPG to see if either Nick or myself can survive in this horror movie. So uh, it's been going pretty good so far. We have a new episode that mm -hmm. came out today uh, that was Blair Witch Project themed. Mm. So. Oh man, yeah, I would not survive <laughs> in the Blair Witch woods. I barely made it through Boy Scouts in one piece and <laughs> <laughs> earning the, the Wilderness Survival Merit Badge was a nightmare. Oh man, I can't <laughs> even imagine. I did some of those outdoor camps as a kid, and as soon as I saw a rattlesnake out in the wild, I was pretty much, I was pretty much done. But I camp like frequently with my husband, so but he's a marine and an Eagle Scout, so I feel like I don't have to do the work. I I just yeah. get to enjoy like nature from a distance at that point. 
<laughs> you are well defended from the rigors of nature. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I caught your episode on Silence of the Lambs where you put Nick through his paces. I am surprised he made it to the end, honestly. I'm surprised too. <laughs> Apologies for spoilers, but yeah, he, he successfully made it through to the end. I was surprised. If I were running a Monster of the Week style encounter with Jane Gum, hesitating would not be <laughs> in his repertoire. Yeah, it was, crafting that was really fun because I wanted to honor the original story enough, mm -hmm. um, but I also wanted to make it personal because work. I've worked with Nick for quite a few months now, so mm -hmm. I know what kind of things makes makes him a better player. So I, I like mm -hmm. including personalized aspects that challenge the player, but that aren't always automatically going to just kill the player right off the bat. Um, unfortunately, as you learned in Silence of the Lambs, he had the opportunity to do a lot better initially, but there were some, you know, <laughs> technical mishaps that happen and you know we just got to keep moving on after those and just got to keep things rolling <laughs> yeah but yeah i think personalizing the story sometimes to the people i'm working with really really helps make it more fun for me as a gm mm -hmm. oh i couldn't agree more we do a fair amount of that uh customizing the mods for our team on anywhere but now Specifically because a good chunk of these, especially for the first season, the mods have been played for years with other other tables that I've run. And I've uh, made sure that when we set them up, for instance, in the Old West, that all the players are going to have something to do that is going to pull them out of their shells and start digging around, literally or figuratively, and <laughs> looking into things. Yeah. Because, I mean, in the gaming world, literally or figuratively, sometimes both, is almost always going to apply. Mm-hmm. Oh, my, yes. So, I understand you use Monster of the Week and D&D &D back and forth uh, as your <laughs> storytelling tools when you're running a horror game. What draws you to the horror genre so much? I think, as I described it to a mentor of mine recently, because he's not really into horror... I think there is something in it for everyone. Like it's very tropey, mm. which I think is something that keeps the horror fans loyal. They know like what's coming. But mm -hmm. I think like whether you're a musician or a creative on the like writing or directing side or an actor, I think there's always mm. something to appreciate in the horror industry. Even if you don't like gore, like Silence of the Lambs, people that are Old, a lot older than me, they'll call it the scariest movie of all time. And it mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of gore in it. And it's an Oscar winning no. film. So it's mm -hmm. it's interesting how many, that, that there really is something there for everybody. Even though it is a very niche genre, people are just kind of scared to step their toe into it. Uh, personally, mm -hmm. I like gore. I, I'm, I, love, I love like, it. oh my gosh, I love it. And I love learning how people made that gore happen. I've always been a big fan of watching behind the scenes videos or doing my own research. So when Nick mm -hmm. came to me and he's like, I want to do a horror mo movie podcast. I was like, okay, perfect. Now I can use like all this time that I would have been looking up interesting things after watching a movie and actually use it towards something and share it with other people instead of just my husband when we're watching it together. I'm like, oh, did you know there's a fun fact about this? And he would say, please stop. I'm trying to enjoy the movie. <laughs> I I have a similar gene in my makeup. 
of oh, yeah. wanting to talk through something with like little details of like, did you know that they were having a spat with so-and-so over so-and-so and blah, blah. And that's why they shot these back to back and you never see them on the frame together. And yeah. I got very lucky. I got very lucky that uh, my spouse, A.E., Provided we've seen it before and we're not like, you know, in rapt attention, quietly munching popcorn when the reveal comes. But like if it's something we've seen a couple of times, like <laughs> say for instance, a season of Doctor Who, I, I can ramble about details or, or tidbits of like, oh, there's an Easter egg here. That's actually a reference to something blah, blah. And like, this is how they met. They dated for so and so many months. They don't mind. They in fact welcome yeah. it from time to time, which thank goodness, <laughs> <laughs> miracles can happen. <laughs> I think finally I'm getting better about not talking about it during the film when i used to work in the casting industry it's something that my dad is notorious for too so i would share little tidbits of things that i was learning in casting mm -hmm. and we would watch something together like bridgerton and i don't know why i chose to watch that first season with my parents but mm -hmm. i was it was middle of 2020 i was home Dangerous there was nothing choice. to do yeah i know well and then my dad though we'd be watching it and he'd be like oh she got paid probably an extra blah, 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 because she showed blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Dad, just because I share that information, I, I really appreciate that you retained it. But <laughs> that is true. You're not wrong. And her contract probably does say she can do that. But it's one of those things that I guess I get it genetically from my dad because he talks through movies mm. like crazy, too. I feel you. <laughs> But yeah, I'd love to circle back to what you were talking about, the expectations of horror and the fact that it's a, more of a niche genre. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the genre lends itself to exaggerated moments, you know, of not just, ooh, ooh, that's close, to, oh, dear God, you know. Yeah. And the heightened punch of the comedy that comes immediately after or, you know, the slow drawn out tension as it slowly slithers closer you know these are wonderful things to play with with an audience of you know whether it's you're you're running a game for just one person or three or or a larger audience i adored the book of uh silence of the lambs um and it got me to the whole series that thomas harris wrote those are still oh, yeah. to this day some of my favorite thrillers yeah i mean it's beautifully written and I think, like what you're talking about, the idea of you can play with the tension more, whether you're doing it on tabletop or if you're writing a horror screenplay, mm. there is something um, beautiful about creating simple stories with really exaggerated moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a good way to sum up the horror genre. And I think that's what makes it so appealing because you can really sit mm -hmm. and eat some popcorn through 80% of the movie and know you're gonna be fine. And if you, you know, have to go to the bathroom, you're probably not going to miss much unless you're creeping up to one of those <laughs> a moments. A cat scare, at most. Yeah. <laughs> and unless you're creeping up to that moment and you're like, oh God, there's something huge happening here. But I think there's something beautiful about the simple stories that are made. Like Blair Witch Project, it's teens getting lost in the woods, Silence of the Lambs, it's investigating a mystery at its core. And there's just a mm -hmm. lot more. I would say Silence of the Lambs out of a lot of horror films is more intricately complex. I would call it- mm, like, Oh my, yes. I would call it today, like in today's genres, it'd probably be closer to true crime, especially Good since- God, I hope not. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it is actually, it's based on like a lot of um, James Gum's characteristics are based on real serial killers. So 
Oh no! I, absolutely, that's that's absolutely true. They were they were cherry picked from a number of serial killers, and Thomas Harris got the idea for Hannibal after speaking with a man in captivity. Yeah, a real uh, doctor. Yeah, it was in Mexico. Yeah. He was a real. He was like the doctor of the prison, and he was there because he murdered somebody, murdered possibly a couple somebodies. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are so many wonderful subgenres like psychological thrillers and psychological horror and things like that. And especially with the multi-layered storytelling, and I know we're, we're, we're flagrantly off topic now. One of the things I love about a good horror film or a good game or a horror series is the rewatchability. You know, mm -hmm. the clues that are come out early on that have a lot more context and impact the second time around because they're not just flags on the sides of the road they're huge burning fiery yeah. posts saying don't go this way it's, it's fantastic exactly and i think in on the rpg side i think now that we've done some that have sequels like mm -hmm. a couple of them they haven't defeated the killer there's um we have a new series coming out in a couple months and I, I was the DM for that one. They didn't defeat the killer. And I told him, all right, the killer's going to be coming back. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's that's a little micro spoiler, but you won't know which one it is until you listen to it. So tee hee hee. Little secrets over here. <laughs> but it, it gives you the opportunity to not only rewatch, but to kind of prep for the future, especially if you're doing a tabletop version where maybe you're not playing the same RPG again with the same people, but you're writing mm -hmm. something like almost a sequel and you're allowing little Easter eggs from the past to be placed. So that way the players have an idea of what could be happening or you could be trying to throw mm -hmm. them off, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's just, let's talk about horror conventions. If it's been on screen, if it's been something they've seen the killer do or the monster do, then it's considered fair game. Mm -hmm. And speaking of horror, we just finished recording Gallery of Fear, a three-parter with uh, the Weeping Angels making a surprise appearance at the end of part two. <gasps> and I adore these monsters. I absolutely... Are you familiar with them? Oh, I am very familiar. They are horrifying and beautiful. Wunderbar. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. I wanted to pit myself the challenge of focusing on the lesser known aspects of like, if there's an angel in your mind, it's gonna come out. Um, and Ooh. an image of an angel becomes an angel just as much as anything to do with the actual stone statues getting closer every time the lights strobe. Uh, but we did those two. Cause you got it, those are where the jump scares are. Exactly, exactly, you get it. We're on a space station, a gallery, an art gallery in space, and have softened them up with an initial surprise attack from a group of monsters in disguise that has absolutely nothing to do with the main attraction. And the beautiful thing is that the characters and the players were both catching their breaths and we're like, oh, okay, we're about to catch the performance and that's the capper for the show. Mm -hmm. And then we're done and okay, great. And halfway through the performance, the the dancer who was working with her partner, the lights strobe off and on, and she's become a weeping angel. Oh. And has already clasped onto her dance partner, who screams and vanishes as her first meal. <gasps> Turns to the audience, and that's when we cut to like, okay, come back next week for part three. <laughs> 
They were white as sheets. They were, they were, they were, it was beautiful. (gasps) That is, oh, I love a good weeping angel. I just, they remind me a lot of, you just don't know enough about them. So I've been rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer lately, and there's Mm -hmm. this one creature in there that makes no noise. It just smiles and it floats. The gentleman. The gentleman, yes. Oh my gosh. It's like on the same level of terrifying for me. Um, they also utilize some jump scares in that as well, but mm-hmm. it's they're designed very similarly in that they they have this ability to capture audiences in a different way outside of gore. Like their silence is what is scary. Mm-hmm. You can't communicate well, with them. They tap into something the same way the Weeping Angels do that um, Moffat loves so much is that he makes him part of a story. Yeah. You know, they've not just here, they've been around a while. And the gentlemen are introduced during Dance Macabre, of all things, with a storybook illustrations poorly drawn by Giles on an overhead projector. And it just paints it with all of this texture and emotion. And like, these guys are serious business. Only the princess can scream can save them. And we've already seen them silently swish and sway through town Ugh, with some heavy, like, Nosferatu inspiration, all corpse-like and... Oh, uh, grins. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, they're not all that different from the silence. The the little gray, the large, tall, unforgettable, forgettable gray men from also from Moffat's run. Oh, yes, yes. I have plans for them in season two because they're just like the angels. They're you. You do this yourself. You play with remorseless killers who have no reason to hold back, who have no reason to do anything but just sink their teeth in. How do you, as a GM, (laughs) how do you make the game last longer than five minutes when you have something (laughs) like that going after one of your PCs? (laughs) Oh gosh, well, for me, so the first time we did a RPG, our very first series, it's a mild spoiler, but it's worth listening to the end my co-host did die. And it was one of the ones mm. I was DMing. And he, it was mm. D&D against Freddy Krueger, and he died really fast. And I think I, oh, I no. realized that these killers, just like in the structure of a horror movie, if they really wanted their victim dead right away, they would just kill him. So mm. I think there is more fun where these killers, especially when I'm DMing or playing the horror movie character, they want to play with their victims a little bit. They want to play it, with their food. Yeah, they, they're, they're the predators. They're going to play with their food before they finally chomp down on their prey. And it's similar to even like the, the Weeping Angels, you know? She mm-hmm. could have come out at any time when she was backstage in the dressing room, like as an example mm-hmm. of your RPG. But no, she waited mm-hmm. until she had an audience. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of these killers, I like to think of them in the mindset of they're probably egomaniacs to a certain degree. I would agree with that. And they want that attention. So it's more fun to like dive deeper into their psyche a little bit and allow them to play with their food before they really fully pursue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was absolutely transfixed by the actor who played Pennywise, uh, especially in chapter one. Again, talking about playing with your food made made him leap to mind or sprawling to mind out of a horrific jack-in-the-box 
<laughs> but yeah, that's another that's another horror monster that is very that very much feeds on that negative attention. Yeah, that's yeah. and it, it makes sense too because I mean if they really wanted to take down somebody right away, and that's what I learned as a GM doing these horror movie characters, I was too mm-hmm. easily able to kill my victim the first time, and I was like, well, mm. I gotta I gotta take a little bit more time, you know even build up his confidence a little bit so I can try to tear it back down. So that way, it's almost like, like the way we do Monster of the Week in some ways is like we are playing on, you know, because the Keeper is supposed, that's a GM term, um, the Keeper is supposed to be on the same side as the Hunter, but when you're doing it in this structure, the Keeper almost kind of has a secondary motive of toying with, like building up the confidence of only to eventually attack mm-hmm. because the keepers are playing the monsters as well and ultimately yeah. they're still going to try to kill them <laughs> yeah i've said this before but like i'm not trying to kill my players or their characters and i do usually engineer at least some motivation for the bad guys to either toy with their food or have a reason that makes sense for them not to immediately go for the kill. Like, we can't kill you, we still need you to perform X, or to yeah. go fetch the MacGuffin in the caves of Y. <laughs> and that's important, because, like you say, you know, we want the story to actually last longer than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I think when I add really personalized aspects, like I wrote an RPG, I wrote a D&D RPG. This one was not horror-related all that much, but it was a gift for my sister for her birthday. Um, and I kind of wrote it around her life and had her family play with her and I, I DM'd it. And in the end, about half of them, not half of them, a few of them died because I had a lot of <laughs> to help them. But I was able to twist the rules a little bit just to make it a good memory and allow them to live. They would be like, I'm at hmm. one hit point. I was like, okay, cool. The monster, you know, had to go. Your NPC friend, Kara, is coming back and she drags you all out of the cave. So, things like that, just because that was a, that was her first uh, D&D match she'd ever played as well. Or one mm-hmm. of her first, like the first full one shot. And in cases like those, in honor to keep the story memorable and not just kill off everybody, occasionally mm-hmm. I will bend the rules a little bit be like you may be dying they may be pursuing you but we're gonna do a full 180 here to see to allow you to make it out and because i want to write a sequel for it so well there you go (laughs) when in doubt they're yanked off by a sequel hook yeah (laughs) exactly so that way it's not just ending nowhere but it's giving them a chance to play in maybe a more advanced setting next time (laughs) yeah No, absolutely, because every time you use a given monster, it teaches you more about how to use that monster, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I I haven't used a lot of the same monsters yet, but hopefully when we start doing sequels, we'll be reusing monsters for campaigns, and it'd be great to get more familiar with them because we just move on Mm -hmm. from them so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So... Tell us about your experience with the RPG musical, She Kills Monsters. What was that like? Well, it is a stage play. It's not technically a musical. So I, my senior year of college, I came to D&D and game, game playing in general pretty late. I, mm-hmm. like three years ago, was introduced. But my senior year of college, I had the opportunity to audition for Quee Gwen's She Kills Monsters. 
it's a beautiful play about um, stepping into someone else's shoes and really getting to understand them through something that they loved. Mm -hmm. So I was thankful enough to be cast in the lead role and it has everything from comedy to joy to just beautiful, heart-wrenching heartbreak to mm. a lot of stage combat. Um, all of those were like nice. right up my alley. So I got to be on stage for a long time, swinging a sword, but then COVID happened and they shut our production mm. down. Oh no. Probably about three weeks before we went up, but the director, um, Kevin Whitmore, he's incredible. He fought for our show to be performed. So we restructured mm. it and we did it over Zoom a few months mm. later. And we were, as far as I know, like the first virtual production to attempt such a stage combat heavy play. So we re-choreographed all of our fights to look, still look good on screen so people can enjoy them. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it turned out to be a beautiful show that we got to give a proper ending because we all thought we just weren't going to get to do it. So it was, it was a beautiful experience and it opened up this whole new world for me that I never mm -hmm. expected. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, no, I've seen other theatrical production companies like Starkid Productions. Mm -hmm. When COVID struck, they moved fairly elegantly to the YouTube arena where they would perform collectively separately. And it was really quite nice. I would love to see the stage combat that happened remotely <laughs> between your characters. Is that available that, uh, that, our, that our viewers can, <laughs> our listeners can find? There's a couple clips, I think, on my Instagram. Unfortunately, okay. I think the only place that has a full copy of the show, I haven't even seen it, is at my school, Loyola Marymount University. So, gotcha. but my Instagram, I have a couple clips of people doing different things and our bugbear running around, stuff like that that we made just marvelous it was so much fun so we and we had dragons like we i still had to fight a dragon in the end so that was Aww. yeah and we had an amazing production designer who made these incredible puppets each mm -hmm. uh, we fought tiamat so it was five dragon heads and yeah oh my gosh and he originally i would fight him in person and that stage combat choreography was amazing but doing it virtually <laughs> it still looked very very cool in the end i can't imagine it could have it, it could have been less than that i mean i'll have to send you a picture after the show like of what the setup looked like i think i've got a couple please do <laughs> that would be wonderful and uh rest assured listeners the details the the link to kylie's instagram will be included <laughs> in the doobly doo absolutely <laughs> yeah no i'm trying to think like horror is such a wonderful genre to explore even with theater. The Woman in Black I saw on the West End when I was in high school. We were doing a, our spring trip was to the UK, believe it or mm -hmm. not. And we spent about 10 or 11 days in Scotland and England. And seeing The Woman in Black in a full-size theater no less, not like some intimate little black box, but like a full-sized place and it made my blood run cold. I screamed like a child that day. It was, it was, I still have fond memories of being utterly horrified. <laughs> well, and it's beautiful. You got to do it with so many other people too, because everyone was collectively feeling what you were feeling all at once. And you know, mm -hmm. the actor on stage is giving that energy to you guys. 
giving you that horror that all of you get to collectively feel together. That's why I think oh, she wasn't always on stage. Natural. She was in the audience at one point. That was part of what made it so horrifying. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, I understand why you would scream then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What can you tell our listeners about your career in entertainment? Yeah. How has it informed your GMing? How has it helped shape the Survive This Crit? Yeah, absolutely. So... Like you said in the intro, I started as an actor and I got my degree in theater. And toward the end of my college career, I started realizing that I wanted to do more than be told what to do. Mm. Maybe it's yes. just that really stubborn streak in me, but I and I started mulling around with the idea of just getting involved in any other capacity. So my first route was casting. Um, I had the opportunity mm -hmm. to do a casting internship and I liked that. I was like, okay, cool. I get to be involved in the story. Mm -hmm. I don't, not quite where I want to be, but I can get involved. And from there, I worked in the background casting industry a little bit too, which okay. as an assistant was long hours and a lot of work for anybody who's interested mm. in that industry. It definitely pays off. It's cool to see the people that you hire on screen and maybe mm -hmm. get your name in the credits. That is a very cool experience to have. But mm -hmm. I think by the end of there, I just wasn't feeling creatively fulfilled because a lot of mm. it was scheduling. A lot of it was making sure people got paid on time and hiring people mm. for different roles. And so I took a step back and I was like, well, I, I want to do something more creative. So... I started producing a small YouTube channel. Uh, I met somebody through dog walking of all things and- It happens where it happens. <laughs> it happens where it happens. And he wanted to start a YouTube channel on herpetology of all things, something I knew nothing about. And wow. I was like, you know what? If I want to be something like a producer where I get to actually have more creative control and create a whole vision for a story, but also mm -hmm. be in charge organiza organizationally, this is a good place to start. So I worked with him for about a year and then I actually moved back to California. So I had to say goodbye to that. But during that time, my brother-in-law came to me and he's like, I want to do a horror movie podcast. And you and I really like horror movies. Like whenever we're together, that's pretty much all we talk about. Mm -hmm. Horror movies or gaming, stuff like that. And I was like, okay, you found your girl. I'm going to execute it you know, me with very little experience except this YouTube channel. So I was like, well, I'm going to, I'll figure out how to do it. So mm -hmm. that's what we've been doing together. It's definitely not perfect and it's a work in progress, but I think that's the beauty about doing creative things is you have to get it out there. You have to let it go at some point mm -hmm. because if you spend all this time perfecting it, it's never going to be perfect enough for you. No. So the sooner you can just let it go and let it be, the better off you'll be. Absolutely. Perfect is definitely the enemy of good, let alone finished. Perfect is the enemy of creativity because eventually they'll just, the perfectness will suck out all the creativity you are trying to achieve. Yeah. I definitely believe there's a spectrum between first pass, oh, that's good enough, let's move on to the next thing, to the far end of the spectrum of like, well, it's not perfect yet. I haven't, it's, it's still need tweaking. To the, a nice sweet spot in the middle of like, yes, this is how I want it to look, this is how I want it to sound, and we can move on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in letting go of anything, whatever the project is, is always gonna be frustrating. 
because you have that mix of like, oh, I'm so happy it's done and I can move on to something else. But then you're like, well, I still could have done this or that better. That's why I'm a pretty type A perfectionist. So that's why mm -hmm. my personal rule for myself is I, I like, I'll do the first round of edits, have a couple other people look at it. And then I'm like, edit one more time and I'm done. I'm not going to look at it anymore. <laughs> Give it to the universe. <laughs> yeah, no, that can be really tricky, like psychologically to be able to do. I have found, because I, I too have streaks of the type A personality and the workaholic who wants it to be not just right, but perfect. Mm -hmm. But I have also learned to adopt the mistake it till you make it approach, embracing the mess and realizing that when something does not turn out exactly the way one hopes, it can be a learning experience. We can learn why. Well, why didn't it go exactly the way we hoped it would? What did we learn from that? Did we make a mistake? Was there some X factor we couldn't possibly have anticipated? What are the things we can actually control in this? You know? Yeah. I think that is a really beautiful way to look at it is to take the time to actually learn from those mistakes and move on and be better from there for sure. And I think mm -hmm. the whole thing is a process of letting go, whether you're in the editing side or the talking to each other side, like if either of us mm -hmm. were thinking way too hard right now, the other one would know. <laughs> like, I got to calculate my answer to be exactly correct. That way it sounds good to the viewers and listeners. No, just let it go. Even though the anxiety voices sometimes will scream at you, you just gotta let it go, let it happen, let it be. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a good thing that improv can teach us. Not just the yes and, but uh, also knowing when to let a beat drop and move on to the next beat to end a scene. Yeah. Because sometimes we can let things run on too long, like sentences. I've been going over rewrites of my first middle grade book recently and finding like maybe one out of every 10 sentences is just a little too long. I can just lop off the last two or three words and absolutely nothing is lost <laughs> point wise, you know, and it's it's a little frustrating, but it also gets easier, you know. <laughs> Yeah, when those improv skills are so important, if you're a GM or a DM, they're mm -hmm. really important because, you know, you're the keeper of the story. You have to be able to know when that beat will drop naturally. And it helps if you have people who are willing to join that flow with you and, you know, mm. improv, but not take too, too long. And chemistry. Yeah, the chemistry is really important when you're gaming with somebody. Yeah, you, you really are. It's like putting on an improv show together, mm -hmm. especially Monster of the Week. I feel like D&D has a little bit more structure, but Monster of the Week has like, you're just communicating with each other the whole time to structure the story. Beautiful. And a lot of it is based on each other's reactions. So you really are just improving, yes anding the whole time. <laughs> I feel like that's what good tabletop can be, you know? Nothing against the crunchiness of the roles. I know there are gamers out there that come to the table for the crunchiness, but the role play, like some of my favorite moments from a game are when there have been no roles for like five minutes and the characters are just on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> to immediately contradict the whole thing about knowing when a scene should end. <laughs> <laughs> 
know, but that's what makes the stories fun. They're a little messy, like you said earlier. It, you give, as long as you have a balance between the like tight improvs and the messiness in between, that's gonna make it more fun to listen to. Absolutely, and knowing when to edit the bits. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is something I'm learning because we have so many random bits that come up and I'm having to learn. Maybe not everyone's gonna find it as funny as I just found it. <laughs> Yeah, I've I have found that I mean I'm doing our own editing for mm -hmm. Anywhere But Now and for the joy of GMing, and I've found that trimming down the laughter can really shave some time off, especially if one of our players gets a case of the giggles, which has been known to happen. Oh, I'm sure. You seem like a very fun DM, so it makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. We try. Like it's a game. For Pete's sake, it's supposed to be fun. If we're not having fun, we're doing it wrong, you know? Exactly. And it's, you know, these people, we're playing in some degree to escape reality. We're not trying to be mm -hmm. so structured to the point that we can't have fun in the midst of it. Absolutely. And now, a word from today's sponsor. I do enjoy the chance to have a game like Monster of the Week or Doctor Who where just like Survive This Crit, you take monsters and killers that you are familiar with and that your partner is familiar with and then just twisting things, that little bit. That is one of the main draws for me running Doctor Who to get a chance to play with something that is already familiar to the player, if not the listener, you yeah, know? Absolutely. It, it gives you a chance to dive deep into a world that you can actually kind of picture yourself in, especially since mm -hmm. Doctor Who is a media form that people can watch. They can actually imagine themselves like fighting off the weeping angels or just making sure they mm -hmm. don't blink. <laughs> <laughs> or get in the way. <laughs> or get in the way, exactly. Breaking or, the line of sight. And even with these horror movies, a lot of times people will say silly things like, oh, well, I wouldn't go that way if I were in this movie. Mm -hmm. Well, let's test mm -hmm. that theory. Let's play. Let's find out if you if you will. <laughs> if you act sassy, you know, Freddy Krueger may really come after you. <laughs> Absolutely. One of my favorite horror films of probably the last 20 years is Cabin in the Woods because it lances it doesn't just harpoon it lances through each of these beats of what a horror movie demands and that particular one at the gas station of refusing the warning and yeah. proceeding anyway like that has to be in the game it has yeah. to be in the game they have to get a warning of some kind that they can ignore or refuse so that when the time comes you know, you can't say they weren't warned ahead of time. Exactly. Oh my gosh, yes. You get to play with those tropes and throw them into the game. Mm -hmm. uh, like the most recent one we recorded, I had a special guest for show up at Nick's door, someone he's in love with. And he, you know, because in the horror movie, you know, when the couples get together, someone's going to die. So yes. it was a test to see what he was going to do in that scenario. And it was a very interesting result. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun to throw those tropes right at the players and see how they're going to react mm -hmm. to them. 
especially when they're watching mm -hmm. it on screen, they'd be like, well, I wouldn't go to the bodega past midnight. The ghost face killer may be there. You know, things like that. <laughs> you get to play with and twist and contort to make your own story out of very simple tropes that are fun to play with. Absolutely. Do you have any tips on running a horror scenario for our listeners? I would say the thing for me that I've been learning, uh, similar to what I said earlier, is give time to like get into the mind of the killer, like play with your prey a little bit. You know, mm. give them the opportunity to explore before you fully pounce on them, because it, it gives mm -hmm. the story more texture. And I would say it's always good to have a mission outside of killing the killer. For the most part, mm -hmm. there's always some other story going on outside of running away from the killer or killing the killer. Mm -hmm. So that is another good thing to keep in mind. And to just have fun with it. I mean, the more that you can let go of, oh, well, you didn't roll this quite perfectly. Like, you're the GM. If you think the story should go in this direction instead, just play with it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's beauty in just letting go and playing with those rules instead of being so strictly confined to them. And I'm sure half of your audience who really likes the rules is probably really mad at me right now. <laughs> oh, how dare she? She can't do that. That's not what it says on page 44. I am a big believer that low rolls can bring high adventure, especially in a tense moment. I love when comedy can impact horror. Mm -hmm. and cleanse the palate. You know, it's like the bite of cheddar after the bite of apple pie. You oh, know, yeah. there's the nice contrast in flavors. And one of my favorite mods to run is uh, The Wages of Joy. You've got a theme park planet with mascots that turn out to be all uh, under mind control and they, like zombies, can turn unsuspecting guests into more mascots. Oh, whoa. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it starts off pretty rough. I'm sure. <laughs> On the subject of low rolls bringing high adventure, they run into this survivor, this tourist, a Thompson Jobson, who has uh, managed with a handful of his extended relatives, managed to survive for a couple of extra weeks. And it's like, come on, I'll show you the way. And then he rolled double, then he rolled snake eyes trying to jump over the counter oh, no. of the snack shop uh -huh. to reach the hidden doorway behind it. And with double ones, it's not just that things went bad, it's that things went disastrously. It's that they could not have gone worse. Yeah. So Thompson Johnson does not clear the landing and twists his ankle so badly, he rears back and shouts and gets the attention of every single mascot within earshot. So we just cut to around the park, heads turn to the candy shop. <laughs> and then, you know, all the stakes are up. You got to do something mm -hmm. right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh man, it's just delightful that this guy who is supposed to be hyper competent because he's had to survive here rolls double ones like, yeah! <laughs> and just 
catch the attention of the whole damn park. It's just beautiful. Oh, oh yeah. We had a similar situation in our most recent one. This is a little sneak peek into our Halloween series that'll be coming up. Oh, oh. One of my babysitters wanted to put uh, do a sleeper pinch on a with the child because she's trying to get her to safety. Mm-hmm. The child wasn't listening because she failed those roles. Naturally. And then she failed so badly on the roles of putting her in the sleeper pinch that the little girl just ran straight toward the killer. <laughs> Congratulations, you have made things worse. It was such an epic fail that we're like, well, all right. And it was one of those that she didn't even have a move for. So we're like, all right, we're going to make up a custom name for this. Night night. Bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful! Yeah, you have to—you have to be at least a little willing to to, to hurt them. I feel the, the <laughs> characters—they know what they're getting into. They should know what they're getting into. Exactly. If they're playing a horror game, you know, it's like, no, you should—you should know better. It's—it's <laughs> it's one of those like, especially a horror game where the odds of dying are pretty high. Mm-hmm. I feel like a a lot of tabletop RPGs are revol- resolve like revolve around death in some way. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you're playing, like the risk is always there. And I think that makes it fun for people who want to get that adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. They're like, I got to go back to my boring desk job. Nope, you don't. You're going to play and almost die, but then you're going to survive. And it creates these shared memories between players. That's something that isn't talked about enough. It's like you really bond with these players by creating these shared memories with them. Absolutely. Even if those moments are imaginary surviving the green goo monsters that are slowly rolling closer with these horrible sound effects brings people together as like, holy crap, if we survive that, what else can we survive? Exactly. That catharsis afterwards of like, whew, we made it, we're alive, is infectious. We did something. It's a wonderful shot in the arm. It's a wonderful just burst of energy. Mm-hmm. We, when I was in She Kills Monsters, our director, Kevin, had us play a one shot as a cast. And myself and the little girl that plays my sister, not little girl, she's an adult. <laughs> the girl that played my sister, she just played a much younger girl. She, we defeated Tiamat together. And that was something that like bonded us because, you know, we're not actually related, but it definitely created a bond that we could carry into our show. Sure, you slew a dragon together. That's huge. Yeah, like you slay a dragon together, you're gonna be bonded. (laughs) And the whole cast was more bonded after that too. They all got to be a part of it. And they all got to be in this room where we all defeated a dragon. It's crazy how much these imaginary experiences bind you. I wonder if that's why kids do so many imaginary games as they're growing up. I hope so. You know, because those games don't have rules, but they're binding themselves to each other by playing them. Yeah, absolutely. Having a, a firm set of rules set up, even if those rules evolve and change or get a second edition, <laughs> can be really useful because as you've said, knowing when to bend them a little bit is also incredibly handy because as storytellers, as GMs and DMs, you know, we're not just responsible for making sure that the narrative we're collectively telling makes sense, but there's the rule of cool, the rule of funny, the rule of awesome to consider, you know, when someone wants to try something that by all stretches of the imagination should not be 
possible within the realm of the rules, but damn it, she's got story points to burn. So we're going to make this happen because <laughs> it's awesome. That's why. Exactly. And the more you can let the players get in on that, and if they have like a unique idea, I almost never say no. Because mm-hmm. um, I've, I've DM'd for other non-horror themed stuff too. And if a player has a crazy idea that they just want to run with, mm-hmm absolutely try it because you're going to texture the story in such a more beautiful way than I could have. Like we're collaborating as storytellers and being able to watch a D&D campaign group that I'm in. Mm-hmm. One of my, uh, I believe I DM'd the first session and we rotate and this guy had, he played one character and then he brought the character into the one that he DM'd and then he used it to become the villain and become the religious cult of Egg Boy. This is a shout out to Skylar. The religious cult of Egg Boy, and which later on, one of my characters was a worshiper of his cult. Okay. And even though he had been supposedly dead, like it's beautiful how something as silly as I'm gonna be a character called Egg Boy and try to take over the world is gonna turn into multiple one shots or multiple stories that they're all gonna be interweaved and connected with each other. Absolutely. When characters connect with something like an NPC, that is a good opportunity to bring back that NPC. Circling back to the Wages of Joy and Calamity, our dollop of chaos. The voice actor that plays her, Dora is her name, has such a well of random creativity to draw from that... It is always an exercise in not just yes and, but sure, why not? And explore where that goes. And starting in that mod, her character Calamity got a job on site at the theme park after interviewing with a helper bot. And as a result of this action in our third mod, a couple of mods later, they ran into the helper bots again, a couple of iterations down the production line. They'd gotten bulkier, they had unionized, and they reached out to Calamity for help because they remembered her in their base programming. And... It's it's cause and effect in action, and it's 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 made of talking parts, and it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, it's it's that collaborative a- effort. Like you couldn't sit down and write something that ingenious by yourself. You'd be by being around other people and feeding off of each other's creativity. Mm-hmm. Will something as cool as that happen? <laughs> and I, I will be listening to those when are they already out? Because yeah. I want to listen to those as soon as we're done. Yeah. Cool. Yep, that's probably what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> Wages of Joy is a perfect place to jump on, even if folks haven't caught the first two, well, four, really, because they're both two-parters. But yeah, Wages of Joy is a great place to jump on because you've got your Time Lord, you've got your companions, everybody's moved in and settled in, and they're off just having adventures, and it goes from there. But yeah, the helper bots make a return in the two-parter Lantern in the Smoke, which is also out in its entirety. Yeah, we've been at this for a minute now, and it's been getting... Intimidating is the wrong word, but, like, looking behind me and seeing that we actually have a good number of early episodes out, and those are all actually starting to tell a story together instead of just a pitch in my head (laughs) for a campaign, you know? Is, yeah. is invigorating. And I hope, I really hope that our listeners and other DMs and GMs who want to podcast get to experience that feeling. 
you know, of like looking behind them and saying, oh yeah, here's our early library you can you can check out at your leisure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I'm sure it's even more of a challenge to not only do these tabletop games at for per episode, mm. but create an arc between all of them. I definitely, I cannot imagine doing that. I mean, we'll be diving into the world of sequels eventually, but you know, there's still a lot of horror movies out there. So we're definitely taking our time before we just jump back into that. It'd be probably by somebody's request that we would dive back into another character that people love. Sure. I have worked on developing a handful of television shows and that has involved the seasonal arc of the first season of those shows. So in addition to being able to appreciate the continuity of, say, a season of TV like on Star Trek Deep Space Nine or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Hannibal, I actually have in my background outlines for a season's worth of episodes or the scripts for those episodes and being able to tell because there is structure to it. It's it's something you, you learn. Oh, yeah. There's books on everything out there. I also have a, a background like yourself in theater. I got my bachelor's degree in theater. <gasps> Twin! Yay! <laughs> but as far as like my writing training has gone, it's all been books, it's been online classes, it's been things like that. And they have more than paid for themselves by this point. But yeah, there is, there's just, you, you lay out a plan of okay, I would like the following things to happen over the course of, say, a dozen stories and pin certain events to those and, like, acknowledge that some version of that will probably happen. You don't make it the last thing in the story, like, make it somewhere in Act 3 or 4 of a five-act structure. Mm -hmm. Because when you're running a game... You're not running something that you have completely plotted out from A to Z. You have figured out what will happen if the good guys do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and off of that, you plan your structure so that when the good guys do come in and they do intercede and they do get creative with tiki torches or a guest pass or a third thing. Holding a dog hostage. Exactly. That has been one of ours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that the thing that is... <laughs> that is going to underpin the season happens somewhere along the line, but it's not like critical to the villain's master plan, etc. You know? And what the characters do, their choices, the memorable choices they make, the characters they attach to, become stronger threads as the story moves forward so that by the end of it, the characters have this rich history of, well, there was that one planet we blew up by accident. And well, there was that museum full of people that we rescued successfully. We only almost crashed that ship. <laughs> you know, like they have a whole, a whole season of stuff behind them. There are also, like you say, monsters of the week. There are just some stories that are just self-contained here and there because you don't want the entire thing to feel railroaded. You want them to feel like there's an essence of uh, an element of randomness in the mix as well, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think your your show does a great job with that. And my, my co-host, Nick, all of his episodes that he writes are slightly connected, mm -hmm. which is cool because he when he, I did my first one with him was Friday the 13th, and he introduced me as a uh, 
agent of paranormal activity, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so he he's done a good job of creating at least somewhat of, of the beginning of an arc where we can see like there's reoccurring characters that I communicate with as an agent nice. after I'm fighting my missions or in the middle of fighting my missions where I have resources if needed. Mm -hmm. But he, I think he's doing something, he's in the works, I think, of something similar to what you're saying is by creating a beginning of an arc to work with. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's something I get to learn from you and from him on how to do that. And I think you explained it beautifully. So I'm going to definitely be playing around, maybe planning some sequels in the future to see if I can make that happen. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, no, love a sequel hook. Love a sequel hook. That's the fun about a lot of horror movies yeah. because they usually don't die. You're like, well, no, it's coming back. No, they'll inexplicably ready. leap out of the water to throw you out of the canoe or the bus will turn <laughs> red and black stripes and pull the kids into hell or things like that. <laughs> yeah. And the mom will get pulled through the door frame mm -hmm. and the, out of nowhere and you realize you're in the dreamscape all along. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But it's really effective because it gives the, the listeners something to hang on to. And it's also like kind of uneasy. I think how Nick and I described the horror side is like, if you leave that feeling that like your gut has dropped to the bottom of your body and you're like, what did I just go through? Mm. Even if you enjoyed the funny moments, but it's still a lingering feeling in the back of your mind, mm -hmm. then you know it was effective because it's leaving its impact on you. Oh my, yes. Like if the if my players are laughing with relief as soon as a scene has ended, I know I'm doing my job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's what I was doing in the middle of Blair Witch Project. I was laughing too soon, but there were there were multiple points where I was like, "Oh, I'm out of it. <laughs> this is great." And he's like, "Wait, there's more." <sighs> it's gonna be smooth sailing from here, gang. <laughs> And it almost never is. Oh, no. Never say that. And then never build your hopes up. <laughs> no, no, we don't want that. But yeah. The same reason you started your YouTube channel is the reason I started Anywhere But Now with our talented voice cast. I didn't want to wait for someone else to come up with an opportunity for me to say their lines or read or write something for them without my name on it and actually just produce something, yeah, you know, with our stamp on it, with the kind of story ingredients that really resonate with us, with some lovely royalty-free music provided by Tabletop Audio. Thanks, Tim! <laughs> and Pixabay. You know, just really make it sing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad that you've had a similar experience. I feel like a lot of actors are starting to get to that place where they don't necessarily want to say the lines. And I mean, admit the writer and actor strike, granted, they definitely don't want to say the lines that they were Indeed. supposed to say because they're not getting paid enough for it. But nope. they, I think, I think the beauty of just getting out and creating something of your own, even if it doesn't get anywhere, it's fulfilling a creative desire in you. Like when you mentioned uh, your friend, I think, your voice actor Deborah or Dora earlier, Dora. how she has a creative well to pull from. Mm -hmm. Like this is an opportunity whenever we record or create these stories just to fill our own creative wells. Yes. And to have more to pull from for the future and more creativity to dive into. Absolutely. 
And it also builds confidence as well, you know? In addition to writing the mods and producing them with some music and sound and getting them out there, I'm also building a portfolio. I'm building a library of games I can point to that I've said, well, yes, I wrote this and you can play it right here if you'd like. But <laughs> everything is practice. Everything is training for the next thing, it feels like. Yeah, and all the previous experiences that you had as well lead into what you are now. Like, you mm -hmm. know, your career in voice acting and your degree in theater and your writing mm -hmm. ability, those help you be a better host with what you're doing now than you would have been otherwise. I certainly hope so. Oh, definitely. I, I enjoy listening to your podcast, so I'm definitely a fan over here. But it all those previous experiences are only going to make what you create next even better. Yes. Yes. Because very early on in my career as a writer, I got it into my head that I knew what I was doing or that, well, since I had started to make money doing it, then I was now a professional and blah, blah, blah. And my cup was more or less full. And mm -hmm. my head was tucked so far up my own backside for the longest time about what I <laughs> considered to be good writing, about this and that and everything. Like, it took me a long time to humble myself and come back down to earth and realize just because something met my standards of quality did not mean that it would necessarily be popular or financially successful. And this taught me things of like, oh, comic relief might have been a, a, a good ingredient to throw in there or producing theater in Times Square. And after it's over, like, oh, maybe we should learn how to make the characters sound different from each other so they're not talking with the exact same voice. <laughs> you see these things when they are behind you. Hindsight is what is 2020, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think I was in a similar boat to you a while ago when I went through a phase where I was like, oh, well, I'm, you know, an actor working professionally. I can't like some of these other like theater productions I'm going to see. I'll be, I would be like hypercritical mm. for no reason other than to be hypercritical. And I, when you get your education in it, it's hard not to mm. because you're exposed to so much of it and you know what quote unquote good within a spectrum looks like. Yeah. But there's so much beauty in the messy like there's a great oh my gosh it's such a good bad horror movie it's called the velosa pastor <laughs> um, <laughs> the velosa pastor i wanted to make sure i heard that right yes it's on amazon prime oh it is so incredibly good bad that i so bad it's wonderful yes Exactly. And if, if I was so, like you said, if my head was so far up my behind, I couldn't appreciate that because, you know, it was made on a shoestring budget and the dinosaurs look insane. But oh my gosh, is it fun? It is. It's one of those ones that I watch annually every year now. That and like Killer Clowns from Outer Space are two that I watch annually. Killer Clowns has better production value, but it's a thin line, though. <laughs> it's a thin line. And, well, Lost Pastor will lower your expectations, trust me, in a good way. It's it's just so enjoyable. I appreciate the warning. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, my, my husband won't even watch it with me anymore. I have to find, like, new people to watch it with every year mm -hmm. because everyone that sees it does not get the hype. My sister-in-law <laughs> is the only one who, who understands because she's seen just equally weird 
horror movies like Lamageddon. Yes, that is a real movie and it is hilariously horrifying as well. I, I sit humbled up until today. I thought the most ludicrous ones I'd heard of were Sharknado, you know, in terms of this <laughs> so bad it's good arena. Oh, yeah. Yes, please introduce yourself to uh, Velocipaster. Return of the Killer Tomatoes is also, also Velocipaster, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've and, seen Return of the Killer uh, Tomatoes. I saw Return when it came out. Have you seen Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? The 70s is so bad, it's awful. No. Yeah, Return okay, is a see, sequel. Now I have one Return is a sequel. I guess I started with a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> and that one actually had, you know, production values. But yes, introduce yourself to Lamageddon and Velocipaster. How can I not with <laughs> glowing endorsements like that? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be one that'll make you question your career in filmmaking after you're done. <laughs> oh, I've I've seen those movies. But it more in a fun way of like, <laughs> should I just get a broomstick and pretend it's a dinosaur? Why not? I can make a career out of it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Truly incredible. Yeah. Wow, just wow. The mic dropped when I said Lamageddon, didn't it? It did. It really did. (laughs) That's fantastic. Lamageddon, Velocipaster. Nice. Very nice. I'm beefing up everyone's Halloween watch list. It's that time of year. It's basically fall now, so. Have you seen Plan 9 from Outer Space? No. Plan 9 from Outer Space cost roughly $37 to produce. It was shot in black and white. It is truly horrible. The cockpit to an airplane is at one point presented by a shower curtain. The flying saucers are paper plates taped together. A headstone in a graveyard falls over because it is made of cardboard. Bela Lugosi, the actor that, uh, that played Dracula in the 1930s Dracula, plays the lead monster in this until he died halfway through production and was replaced by the filmmaker's dentist and spends the rest of the movie with his cape in front of his face because he's a different actor several inches taller than Bela Lugosi. Plan 9 from Outer Space. I gotta watch that. Yes. Talking about movies so bad they're good, that movie is so, so bad. Like, it's, it's not as bad as Troll 2, but it is bad. Popcorn, yeah. your beverage of choice, and enjoy with my compliments. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I am, I can't wait to put my husband through this one. Because mm-hmm. he'll be like, we're going to watch an amazing horror it's movie. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. How have you never seen it? Because I'm, I'm introducing to him a lot of the classics because mm-hmm. he hadn't seen Halloween until we watched it together. And what you were saying earlier about when you go through a film a second time, you notice all the Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. That was something I was noticing. But I kept my mouth quiet while we watched it. Afterwards, I was like, did you notice there? That meant something. But <laughs> but now I can introduce him to Plan 9 from Outer Space. I really look forward to watching that. <laughs> oh, I truly hope you enjoy it in the spirit it is intended. <laughs> well, it's... One of those, like you were saying, like it's got to have a little comedy. This one, they just tipped over the comedy jar together and just threw it in there yes. with the low production value. And they're like, we're going to make something. A paper mache yes. dinosaur. Let's go. Paper plate, flying saucers, <laughs> actors reading from the script on camera. <laughs> yeah, no, it's that bad. It's it's truly horrendous. And it, it must be seen to be believed. I, I cannot wait. I seriously cannot wait to watch it. (laughs) Fantastic. So, Kylie, 
how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can look up Survive This Crit on YouTube or anywhere you listen to your podcast. We're trying to get uh, our listeners more involved. Mm -hmm. So now we have a new thing where if they comment and leave a review, they can actually be featured as an NPC, either played by myself or my co-host, in the episode by commenting the film they want us to review and if they're a fight, flight, or freeze, (laughs) because that gives us a good idea of how they're going to react. Nice. You know, because we want to honor the NPC. Mm -hmm. So... Definitely get involved through our YouTube and through uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. We have an Instagram under the same name as well. I have a personal Instagram that I'm on fairly frequently. It's mostly pictures of my dogs and my husband. So (laughs) if you like dogs, that's a good place to be. Uh, Share a lot of pictures of my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. But yeah, those are the best places to get in touch with us. Great. And finally, (laughs) to our listeners. Another great big thank you for sharing your precious time with us. If you feel it's been well spent, please share the joy of GMing with your friends who are looking to enjoy themselves. You can email your questions for me and our future guests and send that lovely fan art to anywherebutnowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like me to run a game of Doctor Who for you, reach out on startplaying.games. Leave a review, rate the show, and follow us on Blue Sky, Twitter, and YouTube at anywhere but now, and wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to join our Discord. Links to everything in the doobly-doo. From all of us, I'm Casey Jones. There's exciting things to come, my friends. I'm glad you're along for the ride. Thanks so much, and have a great day.